Hi, I'm Jose Marie Macedo, a partner at Delphi Digital. I'll be co-hosting episodes of the Delphi podcast with a broad focus on economics, governance, and incentives. With our guests, I'll explore different, sometimes radical, economic perspectives and how these affect what we value as a society and how we organize ourselves to achieve it. Ultimately, my goal with these conversations is to expand our perspectives in ways that allow us to build better systems going forward. As a reminder, Nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. I or Delphi Ventures may hold tokens mentioned on this podcast, and you can see our show notes for a full disclaimer. First, a quick word from our sponsors before we dive in. My guest for this episode was Maple Leaf Capital, an anonymous investor and analyst in the space who has quickly made a name for himself with some excellent reports on DeFi and sharp takes on crypto Twitter. In my view, Maple Leaf has one of the most cogent, well-articulated theses for crypto as a whole and for DeFi and Web3 specifically. In this conversation, we dive into that and his thoughts on investing in the space more generally, including discussions on moats, specific sectors like credit and insurance, decentralized governance, and much more. I really enjoyed chatting to Maple and hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation. Thanks very much for being here today, Maple Leaf. Well, thanks for having me, Jose. I've been wanting to talk to you uh, publicly for a while now. Awesome. So yeah, we're we're um, broadly going to split this conversation into three parts. We're going to start with kind of an intro to your thesis on on crypto and and DeFi more broadly. Then we're going to go into investment specifically and your thoughts on kind of the idiosyncrasies of investing in the space. And then finally, we'll just we'll just do some some sector commentary. So um, to start with, could, could you give us a quick background on on kind of um, you know who you are and how you got into crypto. I know you you want to stay anonymous, so you can keep it as keep it as vague as you as you want. Yes, I'm going to keep it pretty vague because uh, finance is a small circle. So if I if I say too much, <laughs> I think folks in the space can sort of tell who I am. So you know I've been in finance for for a while in the in the North American uh, geography. I think my job today, you know, it's it's actually investing in public equity markets globally. And, uh, and I'm personally responsible for things related to China and, and software. But I, I've been doing this for a while. And my day-to-day job involves fundamental analysis on uh, stocks uh, for, for companies. And, and how I fell down the crypto rabbit hole is that uh, in 2018, that was after the Bitcoin crash. You know, I, we, we are always pretty cognizant of FX swings in our company. Just because uh, no matter how good your, your business is, if you're in a regime like, you know, South Africa, where FX depreciates 20% a year, uh, it's really hard for the business to outperform uh, a broader index, for example, in the U.S. Uh, when, when you translate it back to U.S. dollars. So it's so always on the back of my mind. I'm very cognizant of what, F, what, what fiat depreciation versus another fiat can, can do to a company. So, so I thought, okay, well, Bitcoin crashed. So, and, and people have been telling me about this. Let, let me spend more time looking at it. Uh, and, and that's how I got involved. And fast forward um, to today, I, I actually felt like um, the space, I, I've always felt the space is, you know, two, three years away always from, from adoption and, and scaling. But, but after digging in uh, and, and, and sort of really tracked the space since 2018 and fast forward to 2020, 
I sort of felt like we have made tremendous strides in improving out the use cases that the space could bring. And, and I'm, I'm pretty hopeful of what, what the next sort of 24 months could bring. So that's, that's the backstory. Yeah, can definitely empathize with the two or three years away thing. It's kind of like ETH2. Uh, when I brand new space is two, three years away and it's still two, three years away. Yes. But yeah, I mean, you, you dug in and I think one of the things that your report does really well is kind of crystallize the, the crypto thesis in a way that's, that's that made, made quite a lot of sense to me. Uh, I think it's one of the most difficult things to do. Like everyone's had kind of the conversations at Christmas or whatever, where you're trying to explain to people what, what crypto is. And it's quite an abstract thing. It touches a lot of fields. So I'd love for you to touch on your on your high level thesis of like game theoretic guarantees and and, and legal recourse. And yeah, of course. Um, and uh, I'm I'm just larping most of the time. And, and I'm as you can probably <laughs> tell, I'm stealing concepts from people I respect. And then you guys write a lot of good research. So I'm sort of of the view that you know what did the internet bring forth? Right, the internet bring forth. If you really abstract it down to a very basic level, it brings forth a copy and paste of bits. And through the semiconductor technologies, through the you know wireless network technology, we can now you know starting in the 1990s. If you're really coming from first principles, you'll see, oh my God, this is where cost of transferring information, right? This is the cost of where copying and pasting bits would dramatically reduce to potentially zero. And if you just imagine a world where uh, this premise is the case, you could see, oh, you know, wouldn't it be great that we can uh, shop and, and have things shipped to us anywhere in the world? Or would it, wouldn't it be great if we can just haul a taxi ride from a crazy device in our, in our hand and we have access to all the taxi information? And coincidentally, you know, that, that gave rise to Amazon and, and Uber. I see, I see, you know, crypto and Web3 and blockchain Something similar, which is you, you now have a information transfer mechanism where bits of information are now uh, guaranteed by the nodes in the network where it's uh, copy and pasted or like or, or you can know that it is not copy and pasted. Right. And and when you have that kind of quality, you know, it becomes, you know, th- 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 that bit of information can now harness very specific characteristics. You know, namely the line item on a ledger or some information of tremendous value, uh, and and naturally it, it could be monetary in, in nature. So you know we are we're at, a, at such a beginning stage where that that is the case. So but but if you really extend it out twenty to thirty years, you, you sort of look at this technology and you say, well, gosh, I I wonder what it what the world would become when uh, value you know in this case can be transferred in almost frictionless and, and cost-free, cost-free fashion. Uh, and, and then your imagination kind of goes wild. But, but back to the point of the game theoretic guarantee and why this is so, so novel and interesting is because, you know, I think it, it is a new infrastructure and it is a new way of how these bits can be copied and, pay, uh, and can, 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 can be cut and pasted. I mean, usually when you transfer a bit, there's a cost associated and it can be hidden, it could be obvious, but, and, and especially who get to log that transfer or a cut and paste or like thereof and, and how those uh, uh, servers or actors are compensated was pretty rigid in the past, right? It is, it is you're submitting uh, a query to a centralized database run by maybe one actor or one node in a JP Morgan database in New Jersey in, in the United States. And, and you're, you're sort of deferring the judgment and the action to those people. Right. Or you're transferring 
uh, some some bit of information to the Venmo server, you know, in San Francisco. What the infrastructure of blockchain really brings forth is that, well, let's actually abstract away and not not delegate that responsibility to one node or one actor, right? But in turn, we are creating a token to compensate and let those uh, uh, nodes compete against each other in some shape or form to fight for the right of logging my transfer of value. And, and, and by the way, this is a very clever game design mechanism where how do I guarantee it that they would compete against each other to fight for the right to lock my information, but at the same time, you know, sort of really do no evil and 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 uh, not allow my information to be misplaced or what have you. So so it's really it's really sort of a, a combination of a lot of a lot of fields coming together and, and sort of allowing this kind of logging rights or, or transfer rights of info uh, to be to be uh, safe in a way, and, and 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 the cost of which is made incredibly apparent. So it's it's a very novel design, I think. And Chris Dixon put it pretty well. It's like for the first time in history, we now have computers that is don't have to trust each other and can make commitments. That was great. I mean, that that's pretty much our our thesis on on, on crypto as well. I mean, we, we see it as, as kind of a social technology as well as a as well as just a technology, you know. And and we kind of take it back to you had like tribes, and then and then you had obviously at the beginning credit was enough as as a favorite tracking technology. But then mm. to scale past tribes, we needed kind of like an, an abstraction of, of, of favorite tracking, right? And that was kind of money or how it started. And then you had like religion that, that, that helped enforce, you know, cooperation. I, I see it all as like scaling of human cooperation. Mm. And, and I, I think like crypto is, is kind of the, the next frontier of that in that it's global, natively digital, and, and has all the, all, all the characteristics that, that, that you said as well. And, and I think one of the front sentences we talk about is like the idea of network effects without market power, you know, that, that you can have. These giant networks, um, like Facebook, like the dollar, um, you know, th- without sort of uh, yielding power to a centralized authority to enforce the rules, you know, which, which you always needed, kind of, kind of previously. Mm. But, um, but yeah, but what, one of the things that, that struck struck me there is that skeptics will say that crypto value transfer is not cheap at all right now, right? It, it's it's, it's it, it'll definitely get cheaper over time, but it's hard to see how. It ever gets cheaper than than a centralized ledger, right? So, so what are people missing when they when they when they make that criticism? Yeah, I think people should think of cost name as a multi-dimensional item, right? It is a all-inclusive function, and it could be in various different ways. And, and let, let me explain a little bit. Like, you know, simply thinking that um, I, I think people who make that criticism are thinking in the simple terms of, you know, A is sending one unit to B. You know, one unit of monetary value to be within one country in a specific facet of time, and that's a very singular dimension, right? That's like one one tick. But but what about more complex instructions across space and time? And you know, it could be it could be a very complex profit-driven transaction scheduled for a later time uh, between multiple actors across multiple jurisdictions. In my mind, at least, I think that kind of cost, the cost to transfer that value. In this new sort of blockchain-enabled rail or paradigm, may not be that much more expensive, but it could be exorbitantly expensive in the current rail. So that's one that's one point I would make. The, the second point I would make is, you know, we, we we should think a little harder about what for what purpose and where's the friction today of of that cost function. And and what I mean by that is certain things can be virtually impossible before, no matter how much money you spend on it, but now is possible. Uh, for, for for example, you know, like transferring information 
in instantaneously across continents in the 1960s, sorry, in the 1600s, is virtually impossible. Even if you're a king or you have all the resources in the world, and and you can't, you simply can't just put a cost function to it. And in that case, the cost is you know like uh, infinite, uh, and and there's great benefit to it, but the cost benefit function never made sense. But but now when you can put a cost on that kind of transfer, now you can run the math and you can work hard to lower that cost. So I, I just thought it's pretty it's pretty fascinating. Uh, I think in, in those two ways, I think those two who say that well, it's really expensive and it's kind of like a toy today that could be missing. Yeah, I think I absolutely agree. And I think another cost that that people often don't talk about is is the censorship cost. And I think that's seen quite different. It's seen in, in the wrong way. Like people focus on on the users that are actually censored, but it's 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 less that and more so the the loss of kind of permissionless innovation uh, from from these centralized ledgers, right? Like throughout. Yeah. Kind of throughout history, uh, technology like has shown that people want to build on open innovation platforms where they own what they build, right? They, they don't want to build on a platform where whoever controls it can arbitrarily and unilaterally kind of change the rules and impose additional costs or you know w- whatever dimension of costs as you, as you, as you called it. Mm. And I think that that's a huge uh, part of this, right? Because we've seen, I think Chamath says, you know, we in in R and D, kind of Facebook and, and Google and the Fangs spent. Uh, over the last five years, sort of more than what we spent to go to the moon, you know, and, and what do we have to what do we have to show for it? And, and I think <laughs> a, a, a lot of that is down to to this loss of like uh, permissionless innovation that comes from these from these centralized ledgers. And I think crypto, by creating like an internet of finance, in the sense that people can, you know, we're seeing it, right? Developers coming in and, and, and building stuff, owning it, having it used straight away, um, can can kind of unlock a bit of that. Yes, I think there's a lot of design primitives that are uh, regulated under a tight leash today. And for the, the barrier of entry of creating something novel financially has certainly uh, dropped meaningfully. So I, 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 I would agree with that. For sure. And um, r- right now, I guess DeFi, I mean, people often talk about DeFi one day, like uh, banking down banked or, or whatever it might be. But right now, what we're seeing mainly is democratizing sort of financial services that were available to the, to the ultra rich. Uh, you have a great chart in your report that I'll, I'll link in the show notes, which shows this idea really well. And uh, describing charts on a podcast is always pretty tough, but it's the x-axis is kind of monetary value and the y-axis is complexity or fixed cost. And you show kind of how these high complexity actions are only available for people who have a lot of money, basically. Yes. Um, can, can you expand on that a little bit and like what the what the use cases are that we're seeing and, and also where you see this going? Yeah. Um, and by the way, the joke I always have is today, you know, DeFi is also there to like unbank the banks if you're not careful. You know, you could get really <laughs> right. But but to that point, you know, I it's it's fascinating, right? Like if you really if you really look at twenty to thirty years, and, and you would say, okay, well, it seems obvious that value transfer costs would be lower significantly, and it will be seamless and, and frictionless. What we really get is uh, the previous rights of feudal lords and kings now becoming common rights of people. Now, imagine a world of sort of financial items uh, as a long tail, similar to books, you know, like the most popular books. And then there's like a long tail of random books. Some financial instruments are very popular, you know, like Apple stock or, or um, you know, uh, like gold. Right. It's a financial product. But some financial instruments are simply too high dimension to be properly financialized. You know, that kind of long tail, it, it's like, you know, a bet between you and me, or it is a uh, very complex OTC bespoke agreement between like two financial parties in some random parts of the world. Um, I, I, I have a hunch, well, there is the issue of discovery. There is the issue of like 
sort of enforcing those contracts. But but there's also the function of overarching thing is like I think if you think about the long tail curve, there is a certain point in time where in the current paradigm, uh, the cost function simply does not allow those long tail of financial assets to be financialized. Now, by changing the cost function on how value can be transferred, all of a sudden, I think some some parts of that long tail, you know, the cost of transferring those values and financializing them becomes less prohibitive. You know, some line items or some complex logics suddenly become possible, right? The infinite costs become the finite cost. And now you can sort of uh, enable those line items to be financialized. And, and let, let me give you an example, you know, like in the information age example, you know, it is uh, the printing press that now transfer info and knowledge, you know, through generations for sort of kings. And, and but, but now that sort of becomes so commonplace that a peasant can afford it. And, and semi-transfer, semi-instant transfer information, you know, used to be just doves for nobilities. And now people have iPhones and are arguably have better access to it. Now, similarly, in, in value transfer rights, you know, um, it, it, I, my hunch is it's probably complex, you know, mechanism-based, uh, cleverly designed interaction of line items across space and time can now be sort of tranched out and sent and received and sort of carved out within uh, one's, one's pocket, you know, in the iPhone or in your brain. And we could imagine in, in that world where every line item of any person in some shape or form can be spliced out and, and retranched. And, and actually that, that, that empowers a person with incredible sovereignty. You know, imagine a world where a sovereign state uh, loses significant control already today in, in one's informational flow. But imagine a future where a sovereign state loses control to one's value flow, right? I think the control over that person really diminishes. But also in that world, that person would enjoy sort of the complete sovereignty that you can only imagine today with the 0.1%, which is, you know, freely exchanged line items, which kind of is an exorbitant privilege for, for somebody who's really, who's really high net worth. The world is that person's oyster in terms of, you know, where he wants to live and how much leverage you want to take on a financial instrument, the access to financial products, the, the kind of financial deals he's able to strike because of the horde of lawyers that he has. But in that future world, when, when the long tail of financial assets could be unleashed through lower cost function, maybe you and I could easily you know, draft up some of those really simple, really complex financial functions, uh, agreements, sorry. For sure. C- could you give an example of like uh, maybe, maybe something that uh, right now, someone that, that, that isn't an ultra rich can't do that you see like blockchain enabling them to or, or this technology kind of enabling them to do? Yeah, I think a really good first example is actually Bitcoin. I know it's kind of a cop-out answer, but uh, the, the, the joke about Bitcoin is that it is the first time where a human sovereign right of wealth preservation is inviolable by uh, a, a, a violent actor. You know, it is it is a national, it is a uh, it is a iron bank of storage of wealth that is created in the ether that unless uh, the person is you know, really tortured and being forced to give up the private key, um, it's incredibly hard uh, for governments or any violent actors to seize that wealth and, and, or, or to attack it. And if we were to go back to the world where before Bitcoin, and by the way, that, that wealth can be stored anywhere, it can be accessed anywhere. Uh, and it is virtually costless to sort of uh, carry it across the border. Now, now imagine um, the world before Bitcoin occurred. Like, h- how do you get something with that kind of property? 
right? And, and maybe if you are really, really rich, you can have your own private bodyguards. You can bribe politicians, and you can sort of, you know, you know, uh, through a private jet fly anywhere. And, and you have a horde of lawyers and, and armies of sort of, you know, uh, in, in your gold safe or something. But but even then, it's it's really hard. Like you, you get kind of scared. Like, what if the Mexican government sees my wealth, and and can I still get it back? Where can I? Well. You can kind of you can kind of retain that privilege in the old days, but that's that's billions of dollars, well, millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars, to achieve it. Uh, but today, and by the way, that, that right is not afforded by by a normal person like like you and myself. Uh, there's no way for us to escape that kind of tyranny if it were to happen. But today, you know, everybody has access to it, and and the cost is you know inc- incredibly low. So that, that's like a really good first use case of enabling something that was you know, kind of safe for the ultra-rich in a way, but now available to all. Yeah, no, that's that's cool. I mean, in the in the kind of hero movies of the past, there's always like a treasure map, right, where someone buried their gold. And, and these the, this is the stories that they're trying to kind of deconstruct and, and figure out the treasure map to see where the, where the gold is buried. I guess in the future, it will be kind of like people's private key clues, you yes. know? <laughs> You're um, kind of already doing it, you know, the guy yeah. through the junkyard in the UK or some poor guy. <laughs> um, yeah i mean I, the people will struggle with mine to be honest like i'll struggle with mine so uh good luck but uh, but yeah you and okay and so what do you what do you say to people that that, that say that DeFi's main innovation right now is actually like a form of regulatory arbitrage right like circumventing kind of these burdensome regulations that that banks and, and also fintechs to an extent have to have to abide by right whether it whether it's kyc um yep. or you know transfer rules um, taxes for, for you know tax evasion for for, yep. for a lot of people. What, what, what do you kind of say to that? Um, I would agree it's regulatory arbitrage, right? I, I think that's there's no question. I think the industry needs to needs to lace up itself over time. But 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 by the way, that kind of regulatory arbitrage is no different when Amazon's going after the booksellers or Uber going after taxi drivers or Airbnb going after hotels. You Good know, and, and the second thing I would say is does it have a part of false marketing and lowering retail new Ponzi schemes? You know, or is there malintention offering of potential securities or, you know, is it feeding into gambling addictions? Yeah, there is there is a great part of that. But, but you know, but, but those three things also already exist in TradFi. And actually, those things should absolutely be punished. I think the industry could be could do a better job working with regulators in that regards and, and sort of going after the really bad actors. But it really feels to me that there are a vast, great majority of honest actors trying to build something really worthwhile here. So, so that's that's what I would say, for sure. And I think this leads nicely. This talk of regulation leads nicely into your three types of value nets, right? You've done a lot of thinking about around how how, how regulation will affect the space and the, the open permissionless, the open permissioned, and, and the kind of the closed permissioned. Could you like uh, explain those three and also talk about how you see them interacting in the in the long term or medium long term? Yes, I think the difference ultimately comes down to uh, who can use it. Right, what kind of barrier it is, and that's how open and close it is. And then who who processes the transactions in terms of are the nodes hand selected or are the nodes uh, self selected uh, via uh, you know a game theoretic uh, market based pricing for ticket transfer. So for something that's open and permissionless, you know anybody can use it for the ticks. Right, you don't have you don't need uh, you don't need permission. Right for for that and and the the, the guys that process it or, or you know anybody can spin up a node or by for open permissions 
I think you need um, like the nodes are, uh, you know, that there's no like, like, like Libra, you know, there's no self-selection of the nodes. You have, you're kind of handpicked, but to a great extent, everybody can still use it. You kind of have to register yourself, but I think there's like good ways around it, similar to how Facebook registration works today. And then the third piece, you know, closed permission is, well, you kind of have to be an, a citizen of China, for example, to use the CBDC. And oh, by the way, you kind of know that the, the, the nodes that process those transactions are central banks of China uh, of, of various flavors. So you kind of know you're, you're being watched. You know, I think there will be bridges that uh, cross all three in the future. And here's what I think. I think you're going to see significant merchant, potentially digital native first volume on open permissioned blockchains. And the why, the reason I say that is because you kind of just imagine a Swiss bank immediately available through Facebook Messenger app or Instagram in billions of users in day one. Um, you kind of already have, in that case, you kind of have an iPhone type app store immediately, uh, whereby now billions of people all of a sudden have potentially access to financial primitives and can use this financial rails to do things that a bunch of app developers could hop on it and start doing things. Now, your app need to be permissioned uh, by Facebook nodes so that they could work, but I, we could see a Cambrian explosion of different type of applications and commerce could really happen. Um, whereby for sort of this kind of closed permissioned nodes, I think uh, it will be very much government-induced stuff first. And what I mean by that is potential subsidies, you know, payment of taxes, you know, like, um, and various things you can think of, like how, how does, how does an individual interact with a, a different power, different power? It, it could be a mo much more sort of like one to many type of relationship versus the many mid to many in it, like open permission network. But, but I think for some companies like, uh, USDC, it's quite possible that their product would spend various type of value nets, right? It could be a permission. It could be a Libra. It could be whatever. And, you know, we could see applications that span all three, but, you know, some functions on some blockchains would be neutered and some would be not. And back to my original point is that if you want to hop from a closed permission blockchain to open per permissionless one, you probably have to go through these bridges where they, it's like the bodyguards sort of check, check yourself on the way out, or you have to really sort of verify yourself on the way in, for instance. And that's kind of a future I see ourselves going into maybe in the next uh, three or four years. And so do you think the closed permission networks are, are actually good for the open permissionless ones and they'd kind of drive adoption, bring more users into into the ecosystem or because it seems like the bridges there will, will be tough and kind of tougher as time goes on and, and governments, you know, like to, once they have their closed permission network, they, they probably want to kind of force people to use that, right? Rather than the open permissionless one that they can't track. And, and yes. Yeah. I think it's certainly possible that the value net world becomes something similar to that of the internet today, whereby China had to create firewall and access to information from the outside could be challenging. But the other way around might not be true. Like if you're on Ethereum and you want to like go on board into like China's CBDC, it might be a pretty simple process. I think, I think there will be gates and barriers, but, but here's what's cool, Jose. I think, I think the, the, the presence of the first two types of net open networks create tremendous competition for for the, the last part of a network too. Because the last part, you know, honestly, it's really using blockchain as a module, but there's really no different like it, it's great greater ease of buildup and 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 usage. 
but it's really no different than the current sort of centralized system. Um, so it just creates competition that um, that you can now have a bridge and may, and maybe the close permission networks will become more and more open over time. Uh, it's just a guess. <laughs> yeah, interesting. And uh, I guess that there's also like some some Nash equilibrium of you know uh, open permission that seems like it will drive more innovation, and so you know it, it seems like the the kind of equilibrium where all states have closed permission isn't really stable in that you know defecting will kind of attract all the innovation um, yeah, where, I think, yeah i think it's really hard to bank on the government creating something um of great value and 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 it's going to look pretty similar to like the, the internet where uh i think you have all these puzzle pieces where people freely collaborate on both information and value right the open permissionless network may actually evolve much faster. Like the curve of uh, iteration and adoption and camera explosion might actually be faster than the internet because the infrastructure is kind of, of, of information is, or is, or is already built. Now Now you sort of have this like multiple level of forces working together to like make this reality. So I, I actually think it, it's, you know, like this is where the cool stuff, this is going to be a black hole of talent, you know, such as yourself and, and capital. Uh, which I don't know. It's, it's pretty exciting. I think I think it probably should beat the closed permission networks uh, nine out of ten times, for sure. And just the last one before we move on to kind of investing in the space. If if I told you if, that I'd come from the future and uh, three years from now crypto had failed, what in your view would be the most likely reason for that? Basically, uh, like cumulative market cap sort of under fifty million or or under and under fifty under, under fifty billion or something like that. Um, yeah. and you know, no, no adoption. Yeah. I probably should have defined failure better, but something, something like something along those lines. Yeah. I, I'll give you three potential things I can think of. Um, one, which is a more of a cop out answer. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't define it as fail. I, I would just say it's like too early. It's like 1980. It is, we, we can't find any good business use cases beyond speculation and, and people just kind of get bored. Right. Um, it, it's a bit of a leap of faith at this point, but I, I, you kind of have to trust the, the sort of new primitive enough to, to, to believe. But I, I, I would assign that a, a smaller probability to it. I think the more likely case is uh, either we have a nuclear winter where modern civilization breaks and the internet takes a big hit, right? I, and the way I view it is like, yeah, blockchain is great. I mean, the, the game theoretic value network is great, but it's, it's organic in a sense to the analog and sort of inorganic gold that we have. You know, it's, it's organic because, you know, I think blockchains have a lifespan, right? It, it, it decays over time as it gets more and more centralized. And if it's not actively maintained, it could actually die like, if we're not careful. So in a nuclear winter where internet infrastructure is shot in the gut, it's not impossible to believe that, you know, the sort of organic value networks we have today take a huge hit. The other thing I could see, you know, if we really fail in three years is um, let's say we go into a bear market, right? And and the FUD starts happening and, and you know, it might be uneconomic for miners to mine, for example. Through really hard work in the parts of China, let's say, or, or America, I don't know, like they secure enough hash powers from the global foundries, TSMCs of the world, at the same time have a very concerted attack to seize the miners for example, in China, assuming that point hash power is not decentralized, and just at, at no concern of cost, attack the Bitcoin network with 50, 51% attack, alongside banning it through the you know, one-bell-one-road countries. 
I think one attack could be enough to significantly dampen enthusiasm. And, and I, I'm actually not sure if a Bitcoin network like the one it is today could be recreated in the same fashion. It could take, you know, like multi-decades and multiple generations. So that's kind of how I see the, the, the sort of blockchain space could die in, in maybe three years' time. Um, but here's the thing. It's a very dark future. So if that happens, like we yeah. can winter, you know, oh my God, bigger things to worry about. Absolutely. And on, on the speculation one, just just quick follow-up. What, what do you think is the most likely kind of first use case outside speculation for, for some of these primitives? My hunch is it's going to be a Web2 business using the Web3 value transfer module as an enabling technology that significantly increases uh, user adoption and makes the platform a lot more uh, attractive or profitable. What I mean by that is, you know, the, the internet sort of web two business today, you know, user contribute content, user contribute their time, and in turn to get, you know, like a, a free service, for example, and they're monetized through ads, for example. Th- those network effect businesses seem prime for disruption if you have a similar type of network, but through very clever game theoretic mechanisms, you uh, empower stakeholders to with just not not just free service but better and more compensation for the valid they drive to the network. I don't know what that business could be yet. You know, could it be uh, only fan type thing, right? Could it be Twitter-like service? Uh, could it be a, a LinkedIn where, uh, and a Pfeiffer and a Kickstarter type, you know, kind of hybrid? I don't know, but, but I think someone is going to probably crack the nut there and make this pretty fascinating. So that that's one that's one potential use case I think could break out. The second thing I thought, you know, could be something to do with uh, gaming, where yeah, uh, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, I think a potentially solid game developer, and actually, it's a similar, it's a similar type theory. Is well, it's not a Web two business per se, but it's like something that's very digital native, and you use Web three module that all of a sudden, I think Dark Force is actually a great example. It's a really fun game, and and all of a sudden, you know, you monetize your users and incentivize them a lot more. So I think those are the really fertile grounds I see, you know, maybe the next three years, hopefully something pops out. Yeah, no, 100%. Uh, I agree. I think the gaming is really interesting. And I think it is very similar to Web2, where a lot of these games, the value is created by the users. You know, there's kind of user-created universe, there's user-created worlds, the interactions are what create value. And so I think finding a way to reward that and let users own it in kind of like a, a fair launch video game, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. would be would be a super interesting concept. But um, yeah, dig- digging into the, the investment side now, what, what would you say is, I mean, you, you've kind of presented your thesis for, for crypto. How do you see at this stage the, the investment landscape? Like what's your, what's, what's your kind of investment thesis for, for the space and what kind of projects and businesses are you looking to, to invest in? Yeah, I, I think so. So personally for me, I think it's pretty hard to, uh, to really leap into the uh, layer one, layer zero and then um, stable coin like you know uh, business today, uh, just, just because I think I think that's a game of giants, and and you sort of need a lot of capital to win, um, and and uh, I almost view it as working capital for you know what I want to invest in. I think the ideal candidates for me they have to fit a few characteristics, right? I think there are maybe like three. One is it's enabled by this value as a business. And, and enabled by, by three valid transfer, and it's ideally 10 times better. Uh, ideally, 
it is uh, layer one agnostic, which means, you know, it could sit on Ethereum, but, you know, when push comes to shove, it can move to Polkadot, it can move to, uh, you know, like the DM network. And then the third thing is ideally it's a business that has network effect where, you know, users uh, empower it. So, so what, and, and basically this is basically further up the stack, right? It is something that uses Web3. It is something that uses DeFi. It is like business segments that, that, that exist. So it would be potentially Web3, you know, Web2 plus real businesses. Um, it would, and by the way, that's just one financial, this one sector, you know, uh, um, potentially select DeFi protocols because I, I sort of view DeFi as similar to how financials are as a part of the S&P 500. It's just one industrial sector. So select like DeFi protocols, I think, are, are still very interesting. And then uh, infrastructure and tools that sort of push us forward. Uh, and and all of, of all those three, you know, if they fit the sort of characteristics I just laid out, which is you know, enabled by blockchain, not just, you know, only blockchain. Uh, you know, 10x better, layer one agnostic, national network effect businesses. I think, I think, you know, this will be very interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Could you give some uh, some examples there, or or if you had, let's say, 100 million, how how would you look to deploy across across those themes right now? Yeah. So the first thing, like Web three businesses, for example, if you can imagine a LinkedIn slash Pfeiffer uh, or Upwork. Uh, slash, you know, Kickstarter type hybrid where all the programmers use in the space, right? It's like a social network for programmers doing jobs. And, and they sort of, you know, can also cross finance each other. They can donate to each other's work. I think that kind of business could be very interesting because it's, it's already network effect enabled. It does, it seems to me they would cater to Ethereum developers today, but I mean, there's no reason why Polkadot developers can, you know, work on it. And it is already a very successful web two concept, but I think, you know, enabling Web3 valid transfer on this native platform where people already aggregate, the users would get a lot more out of it than being monetized by ads. So, so that's a really interesting example, I think, you know, I would be very interested in investing in. You know, in terms of DeFi, I'm sure we'll go into it in, 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 in extent, uh, great extent. I think something that ships fast and, and, you know, become more of a conglomerate could be interesting. So, so I think Ave and Sushi sort of fit that criteria pretty well, and, and it seems pretty obvious to me what they do can also be a, a layer one agnostic. Um, and and the last part, you know, on, on infrastructures and full side. Um, now I won't have access to some of these deals, but you know something that is like chain analysis uh, or something that is like you know like Nansen that deal with uh, data analytics, you know, could be highly interesting. Because they are again, you know, layer one agnostic. Uh, they serve a great purpose. You can only imagine their business will boom as they broaden their reach to governments, to customers, to businesses. I, I think, I think, you know, those kinds of businesses would, would do incredibly well. I think Graph is another good example. But, but let me just kind of pause there with, with names in terms of where I would allocate. So, a hundred million dollars is actually a lot of money. Um, I, I think if it's actually that much capital, I would actually allocate quite a bit, you know, maybe more than 50% to potentially uh, infrastructure and, and Web2 plus type place. And the reason I say that is because, A, I think we're still in the stage of 1980s and early 1990s in terms of crypto infrastructure, right, the development infrastructure. And it's actually, we're still at the stage of building, you know, the foundation. So so the, the, the DeFi and Web3 primitives today you know, may not be able to take that much capital. You're kind of like, you know, shooting uh, flies with cannons and, and overcapitalizing those teams could actually be a detriment. 
And, and the second second point I, w- I would say is that um, you know there you can just probably allocate a lot more capital to this place, and actually they probably would need it. You know, reaching billions and millions of customers would re- require a lot of capital, right? Building a sound infrastructure that is ready to service millions and billions of people would require a lot of capital. So you can just kind of deploy more. Uh, so if, if it's 100 million, that's how I would do it. If it's uh, if if it's like 20 million dollars, for example, I think it becomes very fluid. I think it's then you go where the opportunity is. I could see you know like a third, a third, a third in each, right? Like Web three businesses, infrastructure, and DeFi. But uh, yeah, I, I, that, that's kind of how I would view it. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, kind of similar to how how we think about it. In your in your previous in your first answer, you, you mentioned kind of network effects. And that's something we we think about a lot, uh, especially in the context of kind of competitive advantages in the space. Yes. You know, because this is obviously a space where all code is open source and and, and forkable and and forked. You know, quite often um, the, the the teams are anonymous and and quite fluid. You know, the, the most skilled developers are kind of contributing to to several projects and they move around. So how how do you think about kind of especially in in DeFi and Web three where I think this is a bigger issue. How do you think about building a defensible like moat long term? Yeah, I think I think the three things going for a project would be if they do this really well, I think they'll be okay. One is iterate like through hard work, iterate towards a feature set where there's a lot of plumbing to replicate. So through laziness and habit, users stay. And a good example there, uh, not in crypto, but in real life, could be like Microsoft Word. You know, like Microsoft Word, it's it's not really open source, but it kind of is like you kind of recreate it. But like it, there, there's just, or Excel, right? There, there's so much work being built on top of it. You know, you're so used to it. You just kind of don't want to switch. You're just like too lazy to do it. I, I don't know what the equivalent could be in, in crypto. Like maybe it's, I just open up Uniswap when I, when I want to like swap things. Maybe that's that's one. The second thing is, really own the relationship of customer unit count and capital unit count. So, and that sort of basically means you need to be that first touch point that the customer interacts with this whole space. And it could be one inch, it could be Uniswap, or better yet, it could be a fiat on-ramp where regulatory-wise, you are that first relationship that the customer has. So I think I think spending time and effort and capturing that could be very useful. And, and, and in fact, MetaMask I think does a really good job. It's actually very valuable because that's the first touch point most Ethereum's have. Uh, the third thing I would say is actually uh, you know doing the hard stuff. You know, like what is very capital uh, capital expenditure intensive or regulatory you know burden intensive. Um, you know, damn, maybe that's worth doing because that gives you an edge where. You know your competitors won't be able to catch up even with capital and, and some time. And the last bit is, I think you know this is isn't necessarily a competitive advantage per se, but the, the, the space is so new and uh, the TAM is so large. Where you know, in, in I, I, I talked to you know our our team and my analysts is that like, well, look, you know, yeah, this is a commodity industry, right? For example, like DeFi could be pretty commoditized. Because, I mean, you look at banks in real life. <laughs> What's the difference between taking out a mortgage from this bank versus the other? There's probably no difference. It's like relationships and it's like the, the, the regulatory barrier entry is set up. But banks in emerging and frontier markets could be a good business. Because, and why is that? Because in any businesses, when the growth path is so so high, right, there's a tremendous you know, white space. When, you, when everybody's sprinting to capture that white space, 
there is tremendous economic rent to be extracted, right? There's nothing that beats being early and staying early until the space gets monetized. So, so to that extent, iterating fast with your community and with your devs to get to product market fit faster and have features that jump your product into product market fit and value capture uh, is a tremendous asset. And that that if, and if you can keep doing that, I think that's a competitive advantage. And you can argue maybe the team has you know enterprise value to it. That's interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I also think from from our perspective, it's kind of like an individual, like it's a it's a project by project analysis, right? Of of their specific like network effects and even like sector network effects. I think one interesting one that I kind of covered in a daily was the exchanges versus insurance, right? And like kind of the differences of the network effects there, where mm. you know. With, with an exchange, you definitely have a network effect in terms of uh, liquidity and, and to an extent brand. But like liquidity, it, it's a very like linear network effect, right? It's like you get more, as you get more liquidity, you, you get better execution. But whereas with something like insurance, as you get more liquidity, you, you, you don't just get like better execution. You, you can actually underwrite like new types of risks, right? That, that smaller capital pools can't underwrite. And at the same time, like your pricing is not just based on like liquidity, it's based on diversification, you know, having a diversified enough set of risks that you can use leverage. And then, you know, I think brand also plays like a bigger role in insurance than it does in, in, in exchanges because, you know, you care more about who's insuring you than, than who you're trading with, right? It's like a longer term relationship and it requires more trust. So I think it's, I think it's, it's interesting there. And even within exchanges, then you have sort of AMMs on Ethereum, which I would argue are like less differentiated than something like, like ThorChain. Right. So, yeah, it, it feels like it needs quite a quite a specific kind of analysis to, to figure out. Yeah, I think even with insurance, and it goes back to my point about like the space is so new and you're sprinting to the finish line. I think I think the sort of edge there today is you have a proprietary um, algo or you have a different view of the world where you are comfortable. So is your capital base underwriting to those risks. And, and coincidentally, you're there long enough. But I guess eventually, if you look at the real life, I mean, underwriting insurance could be pretty commoditized and they sort of compete the, the, the cost of equity down to zero. But, you know, yes, but, but we're so early, like, 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 like you said, you know, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big competitive advantage. And you just kind of scale faster than your peers because you're doing all the things right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I also think um, like the underwriting uh, will, will definitely be commoditized, but, but I think like the insurance protocols themselves, you know, where kind of underwriters underwrite on can, can have a, or can be a bit more defensible potentially. Yeah. Yes, it, it is. It is two-sided in a way. Yeah. You, you do want to go to a trusted platform to take it out. And if you're a capital provider, you do want to go to a platform where you probably have the best underwriters and the best risk metrics. So I, I can see that. I can see that. Nice. Yeah. And, and what about valuation? How, how do you think about uh, valuation like right now and, and, and in general? Like uh, yeah. obviously these things, a lot of them are, are um, in, you know, in the billions now or at least in, in, the, in the hundreds of millions. Like how do you how, how do you grow up that? Yeah. So th- there are a few things I would say. I think DeFi as a sector is underrepresented in terms of market cap versus overall crypto market cap. I think it's like 4%, 5% or something. It's, it's still very small. So that's one, I would say. The second thing I would say is private rounds are generally underpriced versus what the token could get in public market uh, liquidity. But overall, the private rounds and potentially the public guys are uh, overvalued for what they have delivered and, or, or can deliver. I mean, you, 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 I don't think you can justify like on a 12-month horizon something you know that has like 
500 lines of code and you know don't really have a product worth 500 million dollars right for example but and here's what i would say it, it is a golden age to attract talent with that kind of valuation and capital into the space and also when we're in a bull market like this driven by the, the capital flowing to btc pulling everything up and and sort of uh, uh you know traditional capital that are looking for that diversification edge allocating to very smart uh, web3 funds and venture funds and the conduit flows into that way. Valuation is secondary to narrative liquidity and capital in a bull market. So you can extrapolate this sort of narrative far down in line to justify any type of valuation, which is kind of what I see happening today. But are they are they they're still cheap on a very relative basis? So are they expensive? Absolutely. Versus what they have delivered, probably a little bit. But you know, I don't think it matters as long as as long as we're in this wave of, of potential adoption and then scaling. Interesting. Yeah, it makes sense. And uh, digging into a few specific sectors now, uh, credit's a super interesting one right now. I think. Yeah. Uh, obviously, we we work closely with Ave. They're an incredible team. Move really quickly, and they're also building. Uh, you know, not many people kind of uh, know or think about they're building a neo bank at the application layer, right? With their e money license in the UK. And then you have. Compound, which innovates, I would argue, less quickly at the protocol level, but but has this these cross chain plans, which which are pretty interesting. Yes. Kind of go towards your your narrative of of uh, chain agnostic infrastructure, and then you have like Cream that's that's in the you're in conglomerate doing this Iron Bank, you know, like um sort of lending to directly to protocols and and with the partnership with Alpha and Yearn, it seems like that could be pretty interesting. Yes. What's your uh, what's your general view of the of the industry and how how things will play out? Yeah, this is specific to lending, right? Lending. Yeah, market. yeah. The first thing I, I could think of is like I think uh, the guys like uh, Sushi and Uniswap and like the perpetual protocols, uh, not per, per, like the, the future. They're they're also gonna jump in the ring because uh, I, I view lending is like uh, you are just harnessing, you are just reaping additional rewards on the liquidity that is bestowed upon you. So uh, I think those guys are gonna start facing competition actually from angles they wouldn't have imagined like anything with a massive tpl could actually be a lending protocol right so that's that's point one point two is you know i i think it is a very valiant uh attempt to explore more ways at which lending can occur which is like the iron bank as well as uh as well as bridging the global liquidity that is sloshing around native d5 web3 today to the real world which is what Compound and Aave are focusing on. I think they're all going to have a very bright future. And I don't view it in the case today yet. They are at the stage where they should kill each other, you know, because look at all these things that they can do. So so basically, you know, I, I, I think, you know, if, if your question is, is one going, like, is Aave going to like really uh, take off and, and all the others won't? I don't think that's the case. I think they'll all work, right? Because the pie is so large. But who's going to outperform versus the other? Uh, I go back to my original point of, well, actually, you know, the, the ones that have the circulating market cap flows, which is fully delegated market cap, and the ones that are more eager on, you know, value capturing. And by the way, value capturing is not just buybacks due to the token, but a, or issuing dividend. It's actually rotating, rotating that, you know, cash flow generated towards more uh, EV positive and high uh, ROIC activities. Which coincidentally is kind of what uh, Compound uh, uh, and is and, and doing, and, and so is Cream. So I think they're all going to have a bright future. I'm slightly personally more lean towards Abe and Cream, 
Uh, but the cream is a little weird. I think the, the corporate governance there uh, is, is changing for the better. But I think they're going to do very well, you know, if they just kind of execute what they promised. Yeah, no, and governance is a really interesting point you bring up there because that, in our view, is one of the one of the really key things that will act as, as kind of a lever to everything else in the space. Because, I mean, I don't know if you were if you followed the Wi-Fi Mint discussions or or kind of any of the other big discussions that happen in the community. Yeah, it's kind of like pretty chaotic and um like it's a pretty chaotic process and i I think this thing that sort of every token holder has to ratify every single decision is is a really difficult way to to kind of build early stage tech you know like you 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 really need some 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 kind of self uh self-sufficient independent like committees that can make decisions then have like a negative process i think where token holders are challenging it but did you see that as a as a challenge and is there any anything you're looking at in in that space that, that, that you find interesting um, so it's two questions. Is anything interesting on the government side? Mm-hmm. And, and then two, what do I think of this sort of Athenian democratic process, right, basically? Yeah. I have two controversial views. I'm probably going to lose, lose, like, I, people are probably going to hate me for this. I, I'm going to say two things. One is a lot of token holders don't deserve anything. <laughs> they, they don't contribute enough value to be deserving of the token bestowed upon them. And number two I think uh, democrat, you know, democratizing votes on every single business decision onto the token holder is a dumb decision. It, it is actually a stupid decision, and and it's just because you need to, like you said, you need to iterate fast, you know. And and there's never you're sort of in a war in a way, like you, you can't you can't just kind of defer decision of like making you know uh, striking decisions based on a, the wisdom of the crowd. And by the way, the wisdom of the crowd is really good at deciding. And reaching consensus on something that already happened, right? They're, they're very good at sort of uh, figuring out a future of the past and arriving at the truth there. But I think it's the future is not written by consensus. The future is written by a selected few that have a sense of the future and work through you know blood, sweat, and tears to get there. And and so the, the crowd is you know most of the crowd is average and mediocre, you know, uh, and and they, they are to be led in, in a sense, but but they can they can greatly empower the leader to get there, right? With their with their wits, with their capital. And, and in terms of future, I I actually fully believe in sort of a, a consensus by um, uh, what's that word called? Like what what Kane did basically, which is you know here's a good way, which committee. is something. What's that? Committee. Like rough consensus, you know, and, and the yeah. proposal I would have is like two things. Uh, sorry, three things for something that is of history or of something that is um, very community, like the community needs to be a part of. You defer that voting decision to the community. But for something that is protocol moving and future determined, like the, the deciding the direction of the, of the company or of the protocol, you do two things. One is. The, the token holders delegate to uh, trusted actors within within the space on a rolling basis, right? For them to make decisions on behalf of token holders, A. And B, you know, the, the founding team or the leading team propose alternatives to what they want to do. And with a very short time window, allowed, you know, the, the broader community to decide on that direction. Uh, and, and by the way, that's not binding. You know, it's it's kind of like here's what we want to do. What do you think is best? And give us some advice. And you have 24 hours to do it. And because we need to do it, it's now. I think it's almost a better way to 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 win uh, for the protocols. And, and by the way, you know, the decentralization for the protocol level it, it, or application level is not necessary. I don't think mm-hmm. it's necessary. 
because layer ones, yeah, because you know decentralization as a means of safety is super important. It's a defining characteristic. But I mean, man, like protocol level, uh, like application level, you're just an application. I mean, <laughs> pick the token holders you need to get you to the place you want. You don't have to be fully decentralized. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I I, I agree with the majority of, of what you said. Um, all, all I would say is like I I definitely agree that the the with the leading thing, you know, you you do need strong visionaries, uh, highly incentivized, working together in in kind of a centralized way to to make things happen. What I would say is that crypto does enable like a different kind of of uh, company building or project building, and yes. we we have seen like. The benefits of that in terms of there are community members in, in all these communities you know synthetic specifically has has a few all-stars that are that, that added more value than than team members you know i'm convinced and and that are sort of like 10x community members and, and at the same time like when we write up our proposals for ave there there are community members that, that no one's heard about that come back to us with the best feedback you know better than better than the the big fund managers that we send it to better than better than kind of anyone and and i think Right now, because it's because this 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 tech is young, we haven't arrived at the right incentive model, the right governance framework to really maximize those contributions. You know, because I, I totally agree with you. Most token holders don't add enough value, and really, what projects need to do is find ways to dilute uh, like passive token holders in favor of you know active contributors. Yes, I, I would say there's like centralization is is important to drive a vision forward, but there's also a way that you can like find better structures to, to encourage like different teams to be building on, on the same thing and, and adding value. That's yeah. what I'm pretty excited about, like someone figuring out. And, and by the way, like um, that sounds like a product already, right? And, and yeah. by the way, you asked me what I'm very excited about. Like I, I'm, ex- I'm actually really excited about someone building a tool that does that, which is a coordination or I forgot the name of that. Per- like you can vote with your MetaMask wallet, but there, it costs no gas fee. You're signing. I forgot what the app is called. Snapshot. Yes, I think that's awesome. And by the way, they can blow this out into a coordination type product, right? Like uh, you can do a lot more things than just voting. Like you should be able to coordinate press releases or investor relations stuff or for projects to uh, like like that kind of co- like I, I kind of don't want to open like four or five screens just to like track medium, get on Discord, do Telegram, like get on Twitter. I, you know, w- wouldn't it be great if there's like one place where you can also do governance stuff, you know, and, and you yeah. kind of. As a, as a B2B type tool. I, I think that's that's something I would be very interested about, for example. Yeah. I mean, that's what got us so excited about uh, Aragon agreements back in the day. You know, the, the <laughs> idea of, of, uh, of being able to encode these like subjective characteristics and, and then have them, uh, you know, be ruled on in, by, by a court. Or uh, I think, I just think it's, it's initially it needs to be like a multi-sig and then it just, it just gets, it's really, it, you can take it to like a broader court, but it's really expensive kind of thing. Um, I, I think that's like the the product that I'd love to see built, and like some some way to give out grants or to put bounties on on features, because you have all these like whether it's ESD or Yearn, uh, all, all these like problems that need to be fixed, and it, it's just about creating the incentives for the the brightest minds to want to fix them. Yeah. On on a, on on just touching on insurance is because it's one you've been really vocal about, and one an area we like as well. Um, what are your thoughts on on uh, on insurance right now in crypto and kind of the most important characteristics here and, and, and projects that you're watching? Yes, I think right now the, the space is still duking it up. There are some unsolved problems. And I think the most important unsolved problem today is the battling of uh, two things is a, you know, who who owns the cap pool and what's that denominated in? And then B is 
how how do we decide the risk sharing and pricing mechanism uh, works? And, and yet you see various models. You see various spectrum of how how liberal that capital pool and how leveraged it is. And then you have on the other hand, like how how the pricing of the insurance premium works today. One one good development I see is like more non smart contract type products. You know, I think um, uh, I think a CDS like you know like default type products being worked on, like for for example for the loans or for the pull in uh, you know BTC minor type contracts. I think that will be that's very interesting. And the custodial type of you know like default insurance on Gemini or like you know BlockFi. I think that's very interesting because it certainly hedges the the, the, the pool. I think uh, you know. I don't have a good answer yet, but but I think the leading protocols, especially uh, Next Mutual and Cover, are iterating closer and closer to uh, a good balance on how capital pool is funded uh, and how the risk could be more accurately priced. And, and, and that's a tough question because I'm sort of of the view that, that, that you kind of need to live in two sides of the world. You either have a proprietary price pool or a pool of capital that kind of just trusts you, and you have very proprietary pricing. You have your own underwriters, and they just go underwrite risk their own way. And, and that way, I think like you know you can iterate pretty fast. It basically like, it's like an insurance company that takes some DeFi capital and start underwriting risk, and and you can iterate fast. And, and what's what's the issue there is that you have to trust the underwriter so that your capital pool is like in a good. It's almost like a it's almost like a credit hedge fund in a way, or, or you you operate in another way. Uh, which is, you know, you have you have a very um, a liberal open pool of capital, and you have complete open transparent market pricing. And, and the question there becomes, how much leverage can you put on the system? Yeah, right? exactly. That was what I was about to ask. Which I think you can do it with some very clever bundling of risk, right? You can say, okay, well, actually, you know, the 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 community led projects, you can have a first to default basket of like four to ten protocols. And uh, and whoever defaults first, that's what you're covering for. But you're co- you're protected for like ten of them, right? And and maybe at any given time, only one of them would default, and you're already well protected because you're pulling from all the other pools at that time. And, and that bundling of risk for first to default could lower the risk meaningfully, for example. But that that's one way. I, I don't know. I think people are exploring how you can add leverage. I, I don't have a good answer yet. <laughs> I'm talking to teams <laughs> to to figure that out myself, unfortunately. No, that's that. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, it, it's it's a tough question, I guess, with the with the supply and demand driven driven models. But I, I like yeah. that framing of, of kind of proprietary pool of capital, and you have your own proprietary pricing, or more kind of supply and demand driven. Yes, I'd say that that's yeah, kind of the design space. I think Nexus is is a nice mix, right? They have a proprietary capital pool, and then they have their own pricing, which uh, right now I think is 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 flawed. It's definitely going to improve. But they, they do have supply and demand incentives like within Nexus, right? With the staking to specific contracts. Correct. Interesting. Yeah. And and uh, what about the just because it's on everyone's mind the the algo stables? What are your what are, what are your thoughts there? Like uh, you, you <laughs> or or potential potentially huge market or somewhere in the somewhere in the middle or both? I think uh, I, I'm keeping my minds open. I mean, I, I could make arguments for for each side. My my sort of view is that. Um, uh, this is kind of a search engine type type play, you know, like you need 20 to fail for one to succeed. And that the one that succeeds, you know, succeed in a way that it, it's a little odd that you, you, you can't sort of imagine why it, it succeeded, but it did. And I think the preconditions for it is, um, you know, one, is there enough business activity on chain for that to, to, to be the case? And how strong is the business development capability of the team? 
And then uh, number two, you know, how, how do you harness the gen capital in a good way? You know, I, I, I'm still very skeptical that this kind of stable coin could, could remain pegged, you know, even through a bear market, because ultimately you need like a, a degenerate crypto native central bank to, to be backing the, the peg, you know, when, when time gets tough. I, I'm, I'm still a little skeptical. I think they are really fun on the way up because they are, they are Ponzi in a way, just like many fiat systems. Uh, but, I, you know, it, when you play Ponzi, like stabilizing, it could be a very hard thing to do. Absolutely. And I, I think Ben Simon from Mechanism s- said it best when he said it was interesting to observe like these algo stables go through their own bailout central bank moments, right? With these, <laughs> with these coupons. Um, yes. And like, uh, you know, sort of m- most of them have, have arrived at these changes where you, you no longer lose your coupon. And so like supply doesn't actually contract, which seems to make the incentives better to get back to a dollar, but like doesn't doesn't seem to help it go back into expansion. Right. Um, yes. And it's interesting to see crypto communities go through what we what we criticize in, in, in central banks. Yeah, very, very funny. And um, j- just to just to finish up, because I, I know you have to you have to go. What, what are some like t- two parts of the question? Uh, we'll start with what are some sectors or projects that, that you're really bullish about that you think other people are, are overlooking um, or, or that you that you think are more interesting than, than sort of the markets giving giving credit for right now? Mm. So I, I'll give you two. I think one is actually, I think, uh, Web2 social network type applications are, are not very well loved because the traditional VC would think it lacks imagination. And then the space would think that they don't quite make enough money yet. And it's, it's not degen enough. But, but I actually feel like they would be the real businesses, B2C businesses that actually will be using DeFi and, and Web3 in a very tremendous way that we can't imagine yet. And, and because they already have the user, assuming they have the network effect, like it could be a tremendous flywheel. And um, uh, two good examples, I think, like Gitcoin is a very good example of, of that. And, and the other one I would say is like a, it's like a, it's like a median plus Twitter hybrid in China called MyKey. You know, they have the largest crypto degen, you know, community that are on there posting articles like every other day with like 50,000 plus, you know, active users. Um, the token is like in, in, in the gutter. But I, but I feel like once you know these kind of platforms figure out the token model, if they if they have a token, for example, or or if they sort of figure out how how best to sort of create value and monetize their users, it could be a really tremendous business or protocol to be had. I don't think people give them you know uh, uh, due attention. Uh, the second thing I think um, is uh, more lending primitives and especially sort of non recourse or uh, lending for um, something that does not have a continuous price is oracleless or is very OTC or long tail. You know, Ruler is actually exploring it. Uh, Ruler Protocol started by the cover team. I, I th- you know, it, it's like one of the first attempts I've seen doing something like this. I, I think it, the common criticism and issue they'll run into would be sort of, it, it's almost going to look more like a peer-to-peer type market. And, you know, how can you scale this model well? Uh, that's a fair criticism, but I actually feel like there is tremendous value to be had because it, it really goes back to my original point of the long tail of assets. I think you kind of need a non-recourse oracleless type of protocol to, to explore the kind of thing. So I, I actually would love to see these things get funded. Um, what do you mean by non-recourse uh, oracleless? So imagine if you have uh, a, an asset that does not have a continuous price based on the linked link oracle, right? It is one of a kind. It's traced by appointment. It's a good, like Picasso painting or like the NFTs are a good example. You mm-hmm. only have prices in history in like discrete increments, right? It was bid here, 
or it was bit there. You can't have link or oracle for that, right? There's no oracle, basically. It's just a point in history. And then non-recourse basically means when the price goes down 50% and I'm under collateralized, I don't get called. It's like a US mortgage, basically. If you buy a house in California, you take out a mortgage, and then the housing price, you know, by common measures, drop 50% and you're underwater on your mortgage. The bank can't call your mortgage as long as you keep paying your mortgage, for example. I think the two go hand in hand, actually. And and whoever cracks that, I think, would be a, it would be a pretty big market, I think, in some shape or form. Yeah, that's that, that's pretty interesting. That, that, that That's a very cool one. I think the, the Web2 social is one that we're super interested in as well. Uh, Ian Lee from IDEO has has a really good thesis on this, and I think has influenced our, our thinking on it a lot. But mm. there's, there's, there's some super interesting stuff happening. I think one of the one of the interesting things is we're starting to see these like breadcrumbs of identity, of on-chain identity, you know, whether it's kind of your credit history and we're working on some some like uh, wallet credit history for, for Aave or, you know, your interactions with, with various protocols, like your, 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 there, there's a bunch of like sort of these data points that you can put together. And I think that increasingly platforms will start issuing or acting as issuers like Gitcoin of these NFTs that, that, that like prove some aspect about you and yeah. that eventually you'll, you'll have a pretty interesting social graph and for me it's like what will the social network converge around because it always needs like some kind of status right like that article states as a service but by eugene way always needs some kind of status and i'm i kind of think that one of the most interesting ones would be like an investment like an investment one like some something like melon something built on top of something like that you know where because people are already uh, like crypto twitter people are already uh, making investment decisions off tweets right and following people for their for their for, for their like insights on, on stuff so i think that could be an interesting way to to build the first social network around yeah it's possible look i i think melon and dhedge and then like set protocol and index are all very interesting yeah. i do i do think they're sort of under um I think the confined to them today is I, I view DeFi as like a pyramid, right? There, there's like the foundational protocols and then there are primitives in finance that can only be built as secondary or tertiary uh, uh, sort of primitives. And, and asset management is like that sort of upper upper in the stack in terms of the sort of uh, finance primitives. And, you know, if, if the sort of the bottom fund, foundational lending and borrowing is $2 billion, uh, maybe asset management as a service is like, you know, orders are meant to be smaller than that at the moment, but it seems like a fun place to allocate for sure. <laughs> um, Absolutely. And you, so you mentioned some of the ones you're bullish about that the other people aren't. What are some things that you see others be super bullish about right now and that, that you're kind of less less so? Yeah, I think uh, uh, and these two could be controversial. So I, I, I personally don't get NFTs. And, and, and uh, uh, let me explain that a little bit more. I, I think NFT is, it is a fragment of what the concept it stands for. I think NFT is part, it, it's a subset to the superset of non-standard assets. And non-standard asset being, you know, higher dimension in maturity and, and various sort of features. And, you know, like tradable R pieces, tradable game pieces, it's just one part of it. You know, you can think of insurance as part of non-standard assets. I think it's a catch-all phrase, but right now it's being viewed as an art piece or a game. And, and I think that, that that space is, I have a little bit of trouble seeing, you know, until a really good game or a really good sort of product come to market, uh, I think it's too early to be placing like huge bets there. That, that, that's one. And, and two, I think uh, it's really hard well, it, it's extremely valiant attempts, right, for, for what, like, the fold of the world are doing. 
But I think I think it's a really hard game to play to be in uh, sort of B two C type app apps that are uh, that are going to market with like an iPhone or an Android type feature. They may succeed, but but at the same time, I think the cost of customer acquisition and you know what kind of customers could go into the space through you versus somebody like a Stash or like a Mint, or for example, I think that's that's a really big uphill battle. You need like a big war chest to compete and hordes of engineers. I personally think that's going to be really, really challenging for something to stand out. And, and even full, I mean, they have a great product, but like, you know, I think Gemini is doing something similar, BlockFi could do something similar. If it really works, you could see like JP Morgan and Bank of America doing something similar. So it, it's, a, it's a tough, like to see to like a broader audience. It's a valiant attempt and, and some would probably succeed, but it's a really tough bet to make, I think, at the moment. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I kind of agree with you about, about, um, yeah, the NFTs, although we're we're pretty long axes, um, <laughs> I, I think I, I think it's uh, I think it's uh, the ones we find most interesting are the ones that do have specific uh, characteristics and almost like cash flow characteristics, right? Um, yeah. I think axes are a good example because you can you can battle them, uh, you can you can breed them, and obviously what, whether you want to breed them or not, especially if they're very rare, is kind of a, a game theory consideration, but. They, they have like some form of, of intrinsic value that's connected to the game that's being built. And I do think it's very early, but um, yeah, we're, it's a super interesting, super interesting one. Yeah. Like I, 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 would, I would much rather back games and the NFT from those games than like, a, a, and I, I don't know, I, like I think art pieces, for example, are, um, are the sort of overflowing wealth effect from the broader, you know, sub community, like uh, that, that existed. But, but games, like I actually feel much more comfortable. Like if, if, if you ask me to like bid on an artifact from Dark Forest, I would probably be much happier doing so because I can use that in the game, for example. I, I don't know. It's just my personal bias. <laughs> 100%. I think art is that plus um, a lot of wash trading, right? Like it's, it's, very, it's, very, <laughs> it's very beneficial for everyone that the, that the prices are, are, uh, are quite high and it's quite hard, to, quite hard to stop as well. Although I definitely think there's some, a lot of legitimate volume. I think there's, there's undoubtedly quite a bit of wash trading as well. Yeah. But um, I, I really appreciate your time. Really enjoyed the conversation. And is there anything you wanna you wanna touch on that, that that we haven't, or any any notes you wanna you wanna leave before we before we end? No, I would say you know guys subscribe to Delphi's pro- podcast and and their their research. I, I didn't get paid to to plug this, but I think they do. You guys do fantastic work, and I'm I'm really glad that we get to connect today. Thanks very much. Really appreciate it. And um, yeah, we'll 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 keep following you. And uh, thanks very much for all the work you do as well. That report was was great. We really, we really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.